If you have believed in your heart in His saving work, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, His ascension, and if you have confessed from your heart Jesus Christ as your God and your Master in repentance and faith because you have called on the name of the Lord in that way, you will be saved. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does it truly mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series in Romans chapters 9 and 10, titled Human Responsibility. The Bible often speaks about calling on God's name, sometimes for confessing that God is the true God, sometimes for praying to Him, other times for praising Him. But in Romans 10, Paul uses calling upon the name of the Lord in a gospel sense. You must call upon Him for the forgiveness of sins. And since our God is a merciful God, the wonderful reality is that He will graciously respond to all who call on Him in this way. Let's join Tom Pennington now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Lord, all the people on this planet, let me say it this way, all the people on this planet are equally under the rule of Jesus Christ and can therefore equally hope in His mercy. This is the message of Scripture in Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. Joel looks ahead into the future and he says this, God himself speaking, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. It's not going to be restricted to some ethnic group. It's not going to be restricted to the Jewish people. They will be included, many of them, but others will not be excluded. Go over to the book of Acts, because this was the message of the early church, and it begins in a profound way here in Acts chapter 10. You remember the background, the beginning of the story of Acts 10. Cornelius, a Gentile, has a vision to send for Peter. Peter, at the same time, is down in Joppa taking a nap before lunch, and, and he also has a vision. And in that vision, you remember, he sees this large sheet that comes down out of heaven, and it's, it's tied together. And when it gets to the earth, it opens and outscurries all of these clean and unclean animals. And God says to Peter, Peter, you know, it's lunchtime. Rise, kill and eat. I love that verse. This is, this is why I'm not vegan, I have to say. And I'm sorry, if, if that's your choice, that's fine. Just don't make it God's way because it's not, okay? He's given us all things to enjoy. Um, but, sorry, that wasn't, I just, that wasn't in my notes, um, pretty obviously. All right, but, but notice here what happens. So, Peter goes with those, as he's having this vision, there's a knock at the door, it's Cornelius' servants. He realizes this is all tied together. God's teaching him a lesson about something larger than food. And he goes with the servants of Cornelius, and he arrives there at his home, verse 34 of Acts 10. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now, and now is added, but that's the implication here. He's, he's got it because of this vision. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. 
Listen, God doesn't care what your ethnicity is. He made you that way. It doesn't matter to him, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's not the way of works. He's about to turn around and preach the gospel to them. He's simply saying, God isn't a God of partiality, and it doesn't matter to him, you know, your, your ethnic background. And then he says in verse 36, what you need to hear is the gospel. It's the word which God sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Notice this, he is Lord of all. And then he goes on to preach the gospel to him. Why does he throw that little phrase in, he is Lord of all? It's the same thing Paul's saying. This message, isn't, this message of the gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. Cornelius, it's for you. It's for your household. It's for your family. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is the sovereign creator over you as much as he is over me. That's the point. You see, back in Romans 10, there is no difference in how Jews and Greeks are saved because there is one Lord over all of them. By the way, this is the motive for world missions. There is a trend today to say, well, we need to stop our you know, sending our missionaries worldwide because we're just exporting Western culture. Well, it's true. We shouldn't export those things that are purely cultural. But there is only one Lord of all nations. There isn't a single person or point on this planet that over which Jesus isn't Lord. And that means there is only one gospel, only one saving way to him, and it is through the gospel that you have believed. And we must take that gospel, as verses 14 and 15 will tell us next week, to those who need to hear it. There's a second argument Paul gives for the universal scope of faith there in verse 12, not only because Christ is Lord of all, but because of the greatness of His mercy. Verse 12, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and here's the second reason, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Abounding in riches, by the way, is one Greek word. It means to be super wealthy, to have far more than enough. We're not talking about people who live, you know, at some level where they're above the poverty level and have more than they need. We're talking here about having extravagance amounts, not just wealthy, but overflowing with wealth. Now, notice Paul doesn't say what the riches are here, only that our Lord abounds in riches, but elsewhere we learn that what He abounds in are the riches of mercy and grace. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I love this. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him, that is in the Beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And notice where this forgiveness comes from. According to the riches, the wealth of His grace. Everyone on this planet who is willing to believe, can be made right with God through faith. He is abounding in wealth. Abounding in wealth. You see, it doesn't matter. Think about this for a moment. What Paul is saying in verse 12 is it doesn't matter how many sinners come to, to Christ, and it doesn't matter how much sin all of those sinners have committed, he always has more than enough grace. He's rich. He's, he's wealthy. He's stinking wealthy in grace. 
I've always loved uh, an illustration I read years ago from Charles Spurgeon. He was talking about this very concept that, you know, people wonder, is, does God have enough grace to cover my sin? You ever wondered that? Is there enough grace for me? I mean, look at who I am. Look at what I've done. He says, picture for a moment those warehouses in Egypt after the seven years of plenty when Joseph has instructed the people to collect all of the extra food, all of the extra grain that's been harvested through those seven years of, of outrageous plenty, collect them into these massive warehouses. He says, imagine a little mouse of Egypt standing at the very edge of one of those warehouses looking at those huge mounds of grain saying, I wonder if it's going to be enough. Listen, whatever your sins are, however many they are, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. Calvin put it this way, talking again about this very concept. He says, the wealth of our Father is not diminished by His liberality. You know what he's saying? He's saying God is is incredibly generous. He just keeps doling out grace to sinners who need it. And the grace he has is never diminished. It's never touched. It's like he's, he's not giving any away. All the sinners he's forgiven in this room, all the sinners he's forgiven around the world, hasn't touched the grace of God. He is rich in grace and mercy. The fourth implication back in our text in Romans chapter 10, is that its promise is categorical. Its promise is categorical. By that I mean that the promises that God makes to the one who believes in Jesus are absolute. They are without qualification. They're without exception. The other day I was riding in my car and I had on the news. It was at the top of the hour and so I turned on the, the news just to catch the headlines and, and an ad came on. And this is not uncommon, but this particular one stood out to me because, you know, all the legalese that follows at the end of the commercial done in like five times normal speed? This particular commercial, there was more legalese than there was commercial. I couldn't even tell you what the commercial was, but I was fascinated by the legalese. It's like, how many, how many exceptions can you give? Folks, when God makes his promises to us in the gospel, there is no legalese. There's no fine print. There are no exceptions. Look at what he says in verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is from Joel 2, verse 32. It's in Joel, by the way, just as an aside, in Joel, this is used specifically of Yahweh. God's personal name occurs there. But here, Paul uses it of Christ. Just another of the countless arguments in the New Testament for the deity of Jesus Christ. But notice what he says in verse 13. It's intentionally comprehensive. Whoever, every person without exception. And then Paul, at the end of verse 12, he had given this little phrase, call upon, and he he picks up that phrase, call upon, at the end of verse 12, and in verse 13, he takes us to an Old Testament quote with that same expression. He says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the question is, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? This is key, right? I mean, this is how you know you're going to be saved, is if you call on the name of the Lord. So what does it mean? 
Well, let me take you back to the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Now watch the end of verse 26. Then, at this point in human history, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the first time that that expression occurs. But then it becomes commonplace. You go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, and it says, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. You go to chapter 26, verse 25, and it says, Isaac called upon the name of the Lord. You go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, and it says, Moses called upon the name of the Lord. What, what does this mean? Well, to really unpack this, you have to understand that this expression, to call upon the name of the Lord, is used in four ways. And I'm going to build to the last one because I think it's the way it's used in Romans chapter 10. But let's just understand this. To call upon the name of the Lord means four things. Number one, it means to call on God in the sense of confessing Him to be the one true God and your God. That's, I think, what it means in Genesis 4 when it says men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to say, God, you are my God. You are the one true God, and you are my God. It's used this way in Psalm 145, verses 18 and 19, where we read, The the Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. What does that mean? Well, listen, he defines it. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. To call upon the name of the Lord means that you fear Him, that you, you confess Him to be God, and you, you own Him as your God. He will also hear their cry and will save them, the psalmist goes on to say. So it means to call on God in the sense of confessing Him as the one true God and your God. Secondly, this expression is used of calling on God in praise. Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13 says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? So he's, he's talking about all of God's goodness, all of his benefits. I shall lift up the cup of salvation. He's talking about praise. And then he puts it this way, and call upon the name of the Lord. So we call upon the Lord in praise. We celebrate his benefits to us. Thirdly, it means to call upon God in prayer. This is when we're asking God for something. Psalm 86, 7 says, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Maybe you came in today and you were in the middle of very real and extreme trouble. Part of what it means to call on God is that you cry out to Him in prayer. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. But then there's a fourth way this expression is used, and I think it's the way Paul intends it in our text. It means, fourthly, to call on God for forgiveness. To call on God for forgiveness. It's used that way in one of my favorite texts, Psalm 86.5, where it says, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in steadfast love to all who call upon you. In one sense, it means he's my God. I've confessed him as my God. But in another sense, I'm calling upon him to extend me that forgiveness. 
Same usage is in Isaiah 55, 6, that wonderful chapter in the Old Testament, one of the clearest presentations of the gospel of grace in the Old Testament, where the prophet Isaiah says, come, buy wine and milk without money. And he goes on to offer salvation. You don't need anything to buy it. The price has already been paid by another. And here's how he puts it in Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Call upon him for forgiveness. Call upon him for mercy. Call upon him for grace. Now, lest you think I'm preaching some form of a, of a cheap grace, I want you to understand that this calling upon God for forgiveness has to be accompanied by, for, by repentance. Turn to Jonah. Jonah's little prophecy. And in, in the book of Jonah, chapter, chapter 3, look at Jonah 3. Jonah has preached his message, um, and they're responding to that message. Look at Jonah 3.8. This was the proclamation that was made in Nineveh. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and here it is, let men call on God for forgiveness. But notice, earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. To call upon God for forgiveness means you're willing to leave the sin you're asking forgiveness for. This is what it means to call on God for forgiveness. By the way, if you want a beautiful picture of this, it's in Luke 18, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus tells the story of, of the two men who went up to the temple to pray, the, the Pharisee who stood and prayed to himself, and he didn't ask God for anything. All he did was rehearse how great he is. Right? That's all he does. He just keeps rehearsing how great he is. And then there's this tax collector who it says wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat on his chest. And what did he say to God? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And what does Jesus say? That man went down to his house justified, right with God. Right with God. Why? Because he called upon God in repentance and faith. Calling on God for mercy and grace and forgiveness is how true faith always responds. Don't misunderstand me. There's a big popular deal about praying the sinner's prayer, as if that's some sort of a magic mantra. Listen, the sinner's prayer may or may not be genuinely expressed, but genuine faith always expresses itself in a prayer, a prayer of faith and repentance. This is the New Testament pattern. This is what's preached. Look at Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, verse 21, Peter says, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that this idea becomes how you define a Christian, how you define a believer. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 14. Ananias is worried about going to visit Paul, who's just been converted, because he says, I mean, he has authority from the chief priest to bind, listen to how he describes Christians, all who call on your name. This is, this is how you define believers. They call on God's name. Verse 21 says the same thing. Is this not he who is in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? Meaning the name of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here in verse 2, Paul defines Christians this way again. He says, the saints are those 
who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is how to define and recognize a Christian. Go back to Romans 10, though, because I don't want you to miss the main point of verse 13. On the one hand, this is an assurance of the immediate salvation of the one who calls upon the Lord in repentance and faith. If you do that, immediately you are saved. Let me just remind you of the tenses of salvation. There is the past tense, the moment you believe you are saved. So if that's happened to you in the past, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Right now, if you're a Christian, you are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. And the day is going to come, future tense, when you will be saved from the wrath of God and from the presence of sin. So this is really a promise about our future salvation. Notice he uses the future tense again in verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Well, look back at chapter 5, verse 9. Having been justified by, by his blood, we will be, future tense, saved from the wrath of God through him. You know what Paul's saying? Don't miss this. This is the sweet point of this. If you have believed in your heart the claims of Jesus Christ, if you have believed in your heart in His saving work, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His resurrection, His ascension, and if you have confessed from your heart Jesus Christ as your God and your Master in repentance and faith, then this is a promise from God Himself to you. Because you have called on the name of the Lord in that way, you will be saved. That is His promise to you for your encouragement, your comfort, your hope. What do we tend to fear, believers? We tend to fear death, and we tend to fear appearing before God in judgment. Paul says, you don't have to be afraid if you have believed in Him. You will be saved. You will not experience the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But this verse is also more than a promise. It's an invitation. If you're here this morning and you've never called on the name of the Lord, if you, like the tax collector, will throw yourself on the mercy of God, you will be saved right now, immediately. And the Lord will begin His work in your life and you will become increasingly holy as we saw in in Psalm 99 this morning, and when you die, you stand before God, you will be saved from His wrath, just as this passage promises. Because if you are in Christ, if Christ is your legal representative, then everything He has done becomes yours, and you stand in Him, so you can no more be put to shame at the judgment than Jesus Christ can, the one who represents you. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's God's promise. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom will have part 11 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, when Paul speaks of calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation, what exactly is the person being saved from? You know, Bill, that is the key question. 
And a lot of people are confused about that when we talk about being saved. Saved from what? Well, according to the book of Romans, those who believe in Christ will be saved or rescued from the wrath to come. Paul writes this in Romans 5.9. He says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see, God offers to save sinners from his own wrath that we justly deserve. It's interesting to think about, isn't it, that God, through the gospel, is actually offering to save us from himself. In other words, God provided a way to save you from his own holy and just wrath. Call on the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to experience the grace and mercy of God rather than his coming wrath. Thanks, Tom. And friend, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.